You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, let's go to 1 John together. 1 John chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one today. There are Bibles on the tables in the back of the room. You can grab one now. You can grab one on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you. Start reading that Bible. See what the Lord does in your life. And if you're willing and able, will you stand with us in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for us. So listen carefully to these words from 1 John chapter 2. I'll read just verses 15 to 17 to get us started. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We are studying these letters written by John, beginning with 1 John. And John tells us exactly why he wrote this letter. He wrote so that true believers might know that we have eternal life. You see, amid all of the uncertainties of our day. For example, who thought it'd be 40 degrees this morning? You never know. Amid all the uncertainties of our day, among all the unknowns and the unknowables, we can indeed be certain about our spiritual status. We can have absolute certainty about our spiritual status. We can know that we belong to the God who is light. We can know that we are on the path of eternal life. But how do we know? How do we know? In this letter, 1 John, John gives us four tests. You can think of these as the four main themes of the letter. We'll see them surface again and again. The first one is the authority of the apostles' teaching. Do we affirm the earliest teaching, the eyewitness accounts? That's the first test. Second, the identity of Jesus. What exactly do we believe about Jesus? Jesus. Third, the reality of sin. How do we regard sin? How do we think of it? Fourth, the necessity of love. Do we display the deepest or we could say the highest form of love? These are the four tests, the ways we know that we truly know God. We'll see them again and again. We'll see them in the passage we'll study today. Now, last week, we looked at the beginning of chapter 2. And in the beginning of chapter 2, John talked about love. Our love for one another. Love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus himself said that this is the defining mark of one of his followers. By this, all people will know that we are followers of Jesus. Our love for one another. Today, in the second half of chapter 2, John will take up this same theme, this same idea, love. But he'll transition a bit. He'll move now from talking about the people we should love to the things we should not love. The rest of chapter 2 we could summarize with just two main ideas. We can state them simply, memorably. Love for the world lies in the church. 
Love for the world, lies in the church. Love and lies. Sounds like a romance novel, doesn't it? It's not. It's the stuff of real life. See, all of the Bible is eternally helpful. I hope you know that. All of the Bible is eternally helpful. But not every point of every message on every day is immediately applicable for every person. For example, you might be a 12-year-old boy and you show up at Faith Church on a Sunday when I just happen to be preaching Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm preaching about husbands love your wives. Now, if you're a 12-year-old boy, that's not exactly immediately applicable, is it? It's eternally helpful. Ephesians 5 is eternally helpful. Every passage of Scripture is. Every passage teaches us something about God, God's world, and our place in God's world. But not every point of every passage is immediately applicable to every person. Today, on the other hand, what we're studying today in 1 John 2, listen to me, whoever you are, it is immediately applicable. In fact, in verses 12 to 14, we see John calling out to every demographic in the church. He says, children, listen. Young adults, listen. Parents and those who are old enough to be parents, listen. And now with the attention of every age and stage of life in the church, he talks about these two themes, love for the world, lies in the church. First, love for the world. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And here we are about halfway through the second chapter of the letter, and we just now get the first command, the first imperative of the letter. Up until now, John has spent a lot of ink on the ideas of knowing God and knowing that we belong to God. Chapters 1 and 2, think about it. He's talked about the God who is light. Jesus, the word of life, our advocate, the propitiation, atoning sacrifice for our sins. John wants us to know God and to know that we belong to this God. And now that we have this confidence of who God is and that we belong to him, now we're ready to receive an order. We're ready to receive an imperative and to submit to it. And so here's the very first one. Very first imperative of the letter, verse 15. Do not love the world. Now what does John mean by world here? This is an important question. If we're going to obey this command, we need to know what he's talking about, right? Does he mean creation? I mean, I thought creation was good. Well, it is. God himself calls creation good in the very beginning. So when John says, do not love the world, he can't mean creation. What about the people in the world who are in need of redemption? Is that what John's talking about? It can't be that either because according to John 3.16, God himself loved the world, the people of the world in need of redemption, loved us so much that he sent his own son to die for us. And in this same chapter, earlier in verse 2, we saw that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the world, the sacrifice for the sins of the world. So when John says, do not love the world, he's not talking about creation. He's not talking about the people of the world in need of redemption. 
What then is he talking about? By world, John means the evil system orchestrated by the evil one, the devil. And I'll have more to say about the devil when we get to chapter 3. The world is this web of influencers and influences that seek to lure us away from the God who is light. That's what he means by the world. Now, how do we know that? Well, look at what he says here. In verse 16, he talks about what is in the world. And he doesn't talk about mountains and oceans because he's not talking about material creation. He's talking about this evil system. What is it that's in the world that we are not to love? It's desires. You see that? Verse 16. How does the world work? This evil system. How does it work on us? You know what it does? It stirs up our desires. It stirs up our desires. Sometimes desires that are not in themselves evil in any way. They're good desires given to us by a good creator. But the world entices us to act on these desires in ways that are displeasing to our creator and destructive for us and for others. John gives us three categories of those desires right here in verse 16. Look at them. First, he says the desires of the flesh or the things our bodies need. The things our bodies need, like nourishment and intimacy. Now, these are good desires because God is the one who gave them to us. God designed our bodies. But again, the world entices us, lures us to act on these desires in ways that are displeasing to God. So God gave us the desire for food, nourishment, intimacy. But the world entices us toward things like gluttony and alcoholism and sexual immorality, perversion. This is how the world works. There's a second category of desires here. Not only the desires of the flesh, but look at this one also, the desires of the eyes. Now, this is not lust, because John's already gotten to that with the first category. This is something different. Desires of the eyes, or we could say it like this, what our eyes see. Probably, this is a fascination. No, that's not strong enough. This is an obsession with the outward form of things. The world wants us to bow down and adore the God of appearance. It's all about appearance. How does your body look? How does your business look? How does your family look? Why don't you hear the whispers of the world all around us? This evil system, how it works and how it works on us, saying things like, don't waste your time developing inner character. Nobody can see that. You can't show that off. Don't bother with things like humility. Humility is not going to help your business grow. Humility is not shareable on social media. 
Don't waste your time with the inner stuff. No, no, focus on appearance. Obsession with outward things. How the world, that evil system works. How it works on us. One more category here. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life, or pride in the stuff of life. Our possessions, our resources, our vocations. See, the world lures us into this thinking that money is our security. I can't possibly be generous. I can't give my money away. That's my security. That's my life. The world entices us into thinking that our vocation is what gives us value, identity, worth. Oh, how the world, that evil system works and how it works on us. Do not love the world or the things in the world, John says. And he not only gives us the command, he gives us the rationale. He tells us why we must resist these temptations. Here in verse 15 and then again in verse 17, he gives us two reasons why this is so important. The first, he says it very clearly. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Jesus says similar things. You cannot serve God and money. See, if you're loving the world, if you're living for the world, worshiping the world, bowing down to the world, then you're not loving God. The love of the Father is not in you. Love for the world is idolatry. Secondly, he says that the things of the world, they're temporary. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. Look, if you're living your life striving to just accumulate possessions, earthly possessions, you know what you're doing? You're polishing bronze on the Titanic. It's going down. Can't take it with you. As Paul says in his first letter to Timothy, we came into this world with nothing. We will leave this world with nothing. So there's the command. It's clear. Do not love the world or the things in the world. There's the rationale. It's idolatry. The things of this world are temporary. Now what we need to do is we need to search our hearts. We need to look inside and ask ourselves, am I having an affair with the world? How do I know? How do I know? What do I look for exactly? There's a Puritan work. It's based on a sermon given on this exact same passage of Scripture. And the title of the work is Stop Loving the World. Good title. Cuts to the chase. Stop Loving the World. The world. Let me share just a couple of observations from that work in question form for you. And I think this will help you decide if you're having a love affair with the world. Ask yourself these questions. First, is the notion of my future happiness connected to things of the world? What kind of goals do you set? Are you striving for all of these things that you think if you attain them, your future 
Oh, it's set. You will live happily ever after. Comfortably, peacefully. As you think about your future, is the notion of your future happiness connected to the things of the world? Or how about this question? Is my present time and energy devoted to the things of the world? How do you spend your time, your energy? Is it easy for you to say, work is what matters most? I must prioritize these projects at work over these people at home. How do you spend your time and your energy? Or how about this third question? Do I find myself waiting and watching for all opportunities and occasions to get the things of the world? What are you chasing? What are you chasing? If you can identify that, then you'll know what you love. The chase, it reveals what we cherish. Two more questions. Fourth, am I willing to endure great hardships to acquire the things of the world? Are you willing to suffer if it means that you'll get the things in this world you want? And here perhaps is the most revealing question of all. How do I react when I lose the things of the world? When you lose your job, when you lose the money, when you don't get the scholarship, when you don't get the victory, how do you react? Do not love the world or the things in the world, John says. Now, Christian, listen to me. If you hear those questions this morning and you're convicted and you find in yourself a love for the world, you know what to do. We've seen it already in chapter 1. If you're a Christian and you're in trouble, you don't say, I hope my father doesn't find out. You say, I need to call my father. It's the first thing I should do. If you find in yourself a love for the world and the things of the world, confess your sins. And when you do, he is faithful and just to forgive you, to cleanse you. You can run to God. Nothing to hide. Confess your sin. So that's the first major theme in this passage, love for the world. Now, John's going to transition and he's going to talk about lies in the church. Now that sounds sort of disheartening, doesn't it? Lies in the church? I mean, I thought the church was supposed to be a safe space, a place where people can be trusted. What was going on in the church of John's day? Lies in the church? Let's look at it, see what we can learn in the rest of this passage. First, we need to think back to who John is. Don't forget this. John is an apostle. He's an eyewitness. He talked about this in the very beginning of the letter. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard and seen with our eyes and touched with our hands. This is why we should listen to John. This is the basis for his authority. He was an eyewitness of Jesus. He heard the teaching from Jesus' mouth. He saw the miracles. He touched the risen Jesus. He's an apostle. 
And at the time he writes this letter, remember, John probably is the last living apostle. The last one. Imagine living in this day, in the closing decade of the first century. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's probably because you know the apostles and you know their teaching, definitely. Probably you didn't see Jesus with your own eyes. You know about Jesus via the apostles. If you have questions about who Jesus was, if you have questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you know where to go, of course. You go to the apostles. This was long before the publishing industry, long before podcasts. People did not have easy access to theological sources, at least not written sources, but they had walking sources, the apostles. But then slowly, the apostles began to disappear until only one remains, John. And John is not the strapping young lad he once was. People began to wonder, where will we turn? For the answers to our questions. Who will teach us the truth? Who will lead us? During this time of transition in church history, from the last apostle to the next generation of church leaders, many counterfeit versions of Christianity emerged. Some claimed things that were very similar to what the apostles taught, others were radically different. In the rest of chapter 2, John talks about one of those counterfeit versions and the people who taught it. And he calls them, get this, antichrists. Antichrists. See it for yourself. Children, again, not biological children. This is his pastoral love for the church. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Wait, what? Many antichrists? You see, films and books, they've conditioned us. They've conditioned us to think that the antichrist is this figure, much like a Marvel villain, who will appear at the end of history. Don't get your theology from Hollywood. Don't get your theology from Hollywood. Did you know that the word antichrist... It does not occur a single time in the book of Revelation. We just studied through Revelation last fall. If you weren't here, it's all on our YouTube channel. You can go watch the whole series. But not once, not once in Revelation is there a mention of the Antichrist. In fact, in all of the Bible, the word Antichrist occurs only in John's letters, 1st and 2nd John. That's it. 1st and 2nd John. And here he says, many Antichrists. Not one, many, and not is coming already have come they were there in the first century they were present back then now what does this talk about the last hour in the new testament the last hour the last days this refers to the entire span of time between jesus's resurrection and his return so back then in john's day the church was living in the last days today you and i we're living in the last days Because according to the Bible, it's the entire span between Jesus' resurrection and his return. And this entire span, John says, is going to be characterized by many antichrists. Now, how how did John spot them? What did they look like? Did they look like a Marvel villain? Red Skull, maybe? Like, who are we talking about here? 
No, you see, they look just like people. Ordinary people. Because they are. They are ordinary people. Look at verse 19. They went out from us. They who? The Antichrist. The deceivers. They went out from us. Meaning at one point, these were ordinary people considered to be part of the church. They were sitting right here in worship. Probably had their own pew. They had downloaded the church app. Signed up for all the connection groups. Heck, they were on the hospitality team. They went out from us. They were considered to be part of the church. Called themselves Christians. But keep reading. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. At some point, something happened. And this group within the church, they decided to depart. They left. And it's not just that they left. They never came back. And it's not just that they left and never came back. They left, never came back, and started teaching some crazy ideas. I understand. We're not talking here about people who decided to leave one church and go to another church down the road. We're not talking about people who decided to hop from one Christian denomination to another. Or people who had preferences for one translation of the Bible versus another. We know that's not the case because of what John says next. He tells us what the deceivers were teaching or not teaching. Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This was their deception. In 2 John... He'll give us some more details. He talks about they deceived people by telling them that Jesus had not really come in the flesh. So in other words, they denied the identity of Jesus. Now this, this is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. This is not, I prefer the NIV over the ESV. This is not, I think we should sing hymns or I think we should sing praise songs. This is not any of that stuff. This is an essential core belief of Christianity, the identity of Jesus. They denied it. And they were stirring up all sorts of false teaching. But here's what I want you to see. These were ordinary people. They didn't look like Marvel villains. That would be easy, wouldn't it? That'd be easy to spot. That dude over there, He's got no skin on his face. He's got a red skull. Pretty sure he's a bad guy. It's a safe bet. But that's not how this worked. This false teaching, this deceptive teaching, these anti-Christs, it started right here in the church. See, for a while, deceivers, they look and sound a lot like us. Might quote a little Bible. Might use some of the same vocabulary we use. I love the way Irenaeus puts it, an early church father. I love this line that he has. Error, indeed, is never set forth in its naked deformity. 
lest being thus exposed, it should at once be detected. But it is craftily decked out in an attractive dress. So as by its outward form to make it appear to the inexperienced more true than truth itself. Error, deception, false teaching, man, it looks good. It looks so good. So then how do we spot it? Because we've already said we're living in this same period of time, the last days that John's first readers were living in. And this is a time characterized by many antichrists, many deceivers. That means there's going to be more. How do we spot them? They don't look like Marvel villains. Maybe. Maybe we should have a series of classes where we study all of the ancient heresies, all the false teachings throughout church history. Might be a time and a place for that. But that shouldn't be our primary strategy. Shouldn't be our primary strategy because it's not what John tells us to do here in this passage. According to John, you don't spot the faults by analyzing the faults. You spot the faults by knowing the true. You know the counterfeit when you see it because you know the real thing. And you know it well. Look at what he says in closing here. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. The truth of the gospel. The truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us. Let this abide in you. Remain in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son And in the Father, you will have fellowship with God. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. See, if you want to be able to spot all of the errors of our day, because there are many of them, you need to know the gospel and you need to know it well. I don't think this will surprise you when I share it, but I have some OCD tendencies about me. Not surprising, is it? I'll I'll tell you a couple of them. One, when we're watching TV at home, the volume can't be on an odd number. Like, I just can't do that. (laughs) Bothers the heck out of me. It's got to be even. I don't know, anybody else like that? Maybe it's just me. Here's another one. When I drink water out of my water bottle, I have to count the number of sips I take. I don't know why, and it's only water. No other drinks, just got to count the sips. Here's probably the greatest one. In my home study, I had this giant desk. Looks like it was made out of old submarine parts or something. Massive desk. And everything on the desk has its rightful place. And if you so much as adjust one book or move my pen an inch, you know what? I'm going to know it and I'm probably going to hate you for it. Now, how, how, do I, how do I know that you've adjusted something, even one tiny little bit? Because I spend hours and hours every week at that desk, reading and writing and researching and praying. I know it well. You want to know when somebody has made a minor or a major adjustment to the truth 
you got to know the truth well. You got to know the truth well. Meditate on the Word of God. Meditate on the gospel. That's how you'll spot the errors. We're going to meditate on the gospel right now as we enter into a time of communion together. Will you pray with me? Our Master God, our good and gracious sovereign God, we celebrate this morning all that you have done for us. We celebrate the identity of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, who he is and what he came to do for us. He is our Savior and he is our Lord. God, we confess that we stand before you this morning guilty. We have loved the world. We have loved the things in the world. And we know what to do about that. We confess our sins to you openly this morning, nothing to hide. No excuses. We're sinners. And we are sorry, truly, we are. We want to serve you, God, our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer. But at times we're weak. At times our, our priorities, they're just all out of order. Oh, the world, that evil system, it works. It works on us. Forgive us. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice in our place for our sins. Help us to live for you. Nourish us now during this time of communion so that we can indeed live for you until the day of your return. In your name we pray. Amen. If you're a follower of Jesus, a believer, we invite you to celebrate communion with us this morning. On the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Friends, this is the truth. This is the gospel. Let's celebrate it together.